Welcome to the Events Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Taylor, and each week I talk with event entrepreneurs about how they plan, promote, and run their events. We help you build your events empire by growing your business using live events. Whether you're running community meetups, conferences, trade shows, IT training, music events, or literally any type of event, we focus on finding actionable tips that you can use straight away. The podcast is sponsored by Apps Events. We produce over 300 of our own events across the globe every year, from training to conferences, and we're now sharing our expertise to a small group of event professionals. There's a couple of ways we can help you. Firstly, we can run the logistics for your event. We have a whole support team who can handle all the heavy lifting for you. We can help set up your website and agenda, liaise with your speakers, deal with the huge volume of questions you'll get from attendees, we can liaise with venues, and we can come to the event to actually run it for you on the ground. Get in touch with james at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call to see if we can help. Secondly, I offer one-on-one coaching to help event entrepreneurs grow their events. I want you to get more attendees, produce epic events, make more money, and most importantly, to do it all with no stress. So just email me at dan at appsevents.com and we'll jump on a call. And now, on to the interview. Okay, and welcome to the events podcast. I'm delighted to have a returning guest, James Shramko. James, you're actually one of the top two most popular. Yourself and Chris Ducker are by far the most popular interviewees so far. So I'm not sure who's who's the top one. I need to double check, but it's it's between you and Chris for sure. Oh, look, that's lovely. Uh, I mean, Chris is a friend of mine, and he's a he's a great uh, guest. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I'm I'm delighted to be in a category of two. Yeah, it's definitely that there's you two. I think, you know, you two have obviously got an audience yourself as well. So when people probably search for your name in, 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 uh, in iTunes or whatever, it pops up and it definitely gets some new audiences. But the last interview, I had a lot of, a lot of emails about it. Because you're okay, obviously... Hopefully, uh, you, some of them are positive. <laughs> yeah, all, all positive, to be honest. Nothing negative. I mean, I don't really get too many negative emails, to be honest. I don't do anything controversial on this podcast. You know, it's not... I think if people don't like it, they just don't listen to it, you know, they just, just switch it off. Yeah, cool. But I mean, you're an interesting. You're kind of a multifaceted entrepreneur. You know, you um, you run a business community. You do some high end coaching. You run a couple of events. Like, I'm always curious with you. Like the events. Do you? I mean, do you actually? Without getting into numbers, obviously. I mean, is is it something that that makes you money? Obviously, you run them for your community. But is it is it something you do? You know, I get the impression that everything you do, even if it's for fun, you still make money out of it. That's almost true. Um... <laughs> I don't have high costs, so that's one thing about my business. And I have a background as a general manager, so I'm able to look at the big picture and get, keep an idea on numbers, and I'm fairly strategic. So if you combine a few of those things together, it sort of makes sense why I do things. I'm quite deliberate. I love this Peter Drucker saying it's more important to do the right things versus doing things right. Yep. And, you know, if you combine that with the idea of the 80-20 uh, or the 64-4, as it turns out, where only a few things really matter. For me, with a membership that's been running since 2009, the annual event is important. Uh, I'll tell you how it works um, from a strategy perspective. Sure. And and just to put context to it, remember, I've been doing these since before Facebook groups. and. Uh, before webinars were prolific. So I got into it fairly early with the podcast and the membership and the live events. So I've been doing those three things 
for over a decade, which is actually a long time in the online space. Yeah. If I've been doing it for 10 years, it's probably a good reason for it, right? So yeah. um, what happens is the way that I prefer to run my business is to deal with the same people over and over again on a recurring subscription. So the, the foundation for my membership is I want to spend most of my attention on my customers instead of going finding new customers. So where a lot of other people have all these tricky Facebook funnels and opt-ins and emails and sales closes and stuff, and they're constantly looking for new customers, by having a really good membership and focusing on them and getting good results for members, it increases my retention. And I found having events uh, will usually bind that group together, it bonds them. It's like a super meetup. Now we do local meetups all around the world in our super fast business membership when we can. Well, obviously we can't right now, but we're doing them on Zoom, yep. which is nothing like an in-person event. No. But what I have found is when we do this super meetup, people really bond. Some of them have been coming to events for 10 years, which is lovely. So in the lead up to the event, I do sell tickets. I do cover my costs. I do make a small profit. It also helps people stick around in the membership. If they were coming out for a renewal a month or two prior to the event, they're likely to stay on. So I think it's a good retention factor. Yep. People who come to the event, typically 50% of them are not members. And by the end of the event or within a few days after and with a very strategic campaign, around about 75% of those people uh, will join the membership and about similar percentage will stay a member for quite some time. Right. So the numbers look like a couple of hundred people at the event, 100 aren't members, 75 will join, and, and then 75% of them will stay, so 60-odd people. Yep. And after the event, of course, I've now got the recordings. And I want to state this. You know, content has really deflated in value. You know, once upon a time, I used to sell DVDs of the event and, you know, people would sell recordings of events. I think recordings of events are not that valuable anymore. Yep. A lot of people have put up memberships selling content. So content's really one of the three components that make my membership work. But it is good to get brand new content, and I am currently running a campaign right now to the public via some advertising to let people know that I've now got the recordings from the event where people paid up to $2,000 to attend and they can access the recordings from that event and not just the recordings from that event but also the recordings from all the previous events because that's the only place I put them. I don't sell them standalone. I don't stream my event. I don't sell virtual tickets to my event. You're either in the room or you're a member of the membership and that's how you get it and that's how it's rolled. Uh, so after the event, I get a lift in memberships because I get new people who were at the event convert. I get a marketing campaign for the new things that are in the membership that I can talk about. Yep. I also get uh, people who were probably coming up close to renewal but stayed on and they'll stay on longer. And I've got a good portion of my membership on an annual recurring subscription. Yep. And these days I only sell it monthly. So I have a lot of people on monthly now, the new people. Interesting. So to answer your question, I do get paid before the event. I do get paid during the event. I do get paid after the event. It's a retention tool. It's a community bond. It's a bit of hard work and a hassle, 
it's I mean it's not huge profitability for me because in Australia uh, at these events they're not cheap so I I rent out a venue. Uh, a lot of hotels will try and force you to have room blocks as well. That's something to be mindful of. Yep. But at my events, I feed people all the meals. So they get like morning tea, they get coffee on arrival, they get lunch, they get dinner, three-course meal, drinks, yep. entertainment, like comedians or performers. Then the next day, the same again, all the meals. They get clothing. We have merchandise like hoodies. They get embossed workbooks. They get uh, books, pens, bags. So there's a lot of stuff that goes out in terms of expense. But I wanted to feed them with education. Yep. I wanted to feed them with food. I wanted to feed them with, you know, clothe them and really create this nurturing message that I'm here to support them and that they're very important to me. And that uh, helps me keep members. And then I don't have to worry so much about finding new customers all the time. And it translates to a membership that has been consistently profitable for me for over 10 years straight without ever having a dip. I've almost always had about 500 members the whole time. And it's slowly come down a little bit lately and then stabilized at a slightly lower number, but my rates also improved. So it's effectively become an even more enjoyable experience for me and it acknowledges my extra experience because of the people I coach, because of the, the data that I've seen that helps me get quick wins because of the personal private coaching that I can offer people if they take that plan. Yep. And I'm now able to answer questions easily because I have the content from the last event or the event before that addresses it, uh, aside from the stuff that I add ongoing, which um, is every single month I add two trainings a month. Yep. It's interesting. Like, there's a few things I have to talk about. Um, um, obviously, your book, Work Less, Make More, which I recommend. I, I really enjoyed it. Like, I like the fact you're quite strategic. Like, you don't want just to take on any amount of work just to make money. You know, you, you're very focused mm. on what you want to do, how many hours you want to work. And then I guess if you come at it from that point of view, I'm going to work this many hours, then you just got to maximize how much money you make in those hours. So I like the fact you're very kind of strategic. And I, I've, I've tried to take that approach much more with my business recently as well, which, which is, is great. You know, I think if you, it's, it's a mindset shift, which is kind of a bit woo-woo, but if, if you stick with it, it, it genuinely works, I think, as, as a way to run a business. Well, I don't, I don't know if it is at all woo-woo. I debate that because it's really just more accounting. It's, you say, it's like almost, a mindset shift, you know, it sounds like that, you know. It's almost the opposite of woo-woo. It's like it's just putting a hard fact base on your time and effort. It's like saying, here's a measurement to work out exactly how much you make per hour and you can adjust the uh, number of hours you work uh, and you can adjust the profitability per hour, they're, they're going to result in a different income. Uh, but you are certainly right. I have limited the amount that I'm prepared to work because I think money is only one dimension in terms of having a good life or what, what I would deem a success for me is maybe different to what someone else might deem success. And it might be related to my stage in life. It might be related to my stage in business. It might be just because of my values or things that have shaped me or people I hang around. But in any case, it's worth acknowledging that other people's goals and aspirations don't necessarily have to be the same as yours. And I think younger entrepreneurs especially get caught up in the whole 
hoopla of uh, materialism and when they get it they won't be satisfied that will not fulfill them is my prediction i think you're right i mean i i had a different you know when i was early 20s i lived in london and i worked in in the city you know i i, I went to work for an investment bank after university and that's a different kind of like you know materialism and keeping up with it it's, it's you know and then i think you, you get a bit older and and obviously you know if you've had a bit of success, I think, you, you know, I've got young children now, like, you know, I know you've had a, a, a daughter recently, like, you know, you, you, you want to focus on that part of a life, you know, I want to focus on spending time in the mountains and I want to do some other stuff. And it's, and money's not the only currency. I mean, obviously that's people, someone who hasn't got any money is going to listen to this and think, what a load of bullshit, you know, like I, I need to make money. But I think, I think it, if you, if you think this before you've got money, I don't know, maybe it's easier to actually end up in that place, you know, because I never thought about this balance of life until I had a bit of money, you know? Yeah, so it's like when you get money and when you get time, uh, then things change. Things like relationships uh, and health in particular become far more important yeah. because you've, you know, you've finally got what you want. It's like if you went to your local um, factory and you said to the factory workers, all right, well, I've just deposited $10 million into your bank account so you don't have to come into work tomorrow if you don't want. A lot of people probably haven't given much thought to what comes after that. Yeah. It's like, you know, maybe they could spend time with their partner that they see for like an hour a day. Or yeah. um, in my case, you know, like I've, I've got a lot of kids and it's been a profound experience to spend so much time with my daughter because when I had the first four kids, I had a job. Yeah. Uh, up until one of them was about seven or eight. Uh, and now to have gone through the pre-birth to birth and, and working from home, it's been such a different experience and, and uh, it's unbelievable. really is yeah. amazing. It's like that's not a money experience. I mean, it's much easier to live life with money. I'm, I'm all fine with having money and I've got money, which is great because of the business I set up. If I didn't have it, then yes, I'd be like the other people. I'd be focused on getting it. I think, of course, I understand why you want to make the money. I'm not saying don't. I do. Um, I did actually meet quite a few unhappy rich people when I was at Mercedes-Benz. My customers, a lot of them were company directors, old guys who had uh, bad relationships with their family or their kids or were... Um, bitter or remorseful or regretful about some of the choices they've made and then they had a lot of money and they had a nice new car but they weren't happy and yeah. that was interesting for me to observe and to pay attention to interesting yeah so go back to a couple of the other things you mentioned one thing was about how you said about you've got very lean cost base and i know like me you've got a team in the philippines i remember because i met you uh, many years ago at DC, DCBKK, where, where you were speaking. Um, and that's actually when, I, when I, I remember chatting to you, like, and I was saying, do you have any Australian employees? And you were like, no, my whole team's in the Philippines. And I think back then you had a, a bigger team. I think you sold some of the business based on one of your podcasts I listened to. But um, it's interesting because I've had um, a small team in Cebu for, for, for eight years now, like uh, Gwen and Jane. Jane will be editing this podcast. Both been with me for eight years. And I've, and I've kind of kept it small, but, it's, but I, I think... Uh, could you talk a bit about how having the team in the Philippines has helped you like run your events and also your community? Like, cause, cause you've obviously focused on the one place by the sounds of it and focused on building up a long-term kind of small team there. Yeah. Well, my team members are um, 
have clocked over 10 years, some of them. And uh, I've only got one who's been with me for less than eight years. Yeah. Uh, so they're amazing. I mean, they do all the things that I'm either not good at or don't want to do or probably shouldn't do because they're not an effective use of my time. Um, sure. the, the reality is they're far more talented at doing most of the things that I used to do. So it was a case of me listing down all the tasks that I was doing when it was just me and then transferring them across to someone else. When I hired my first assistant in the Philippines, it was sort of after reading Timothy Ferris's book and I remember applying for Your Man in India, but yeah. it, it was in meltdown because everyone else had as well. Yeah. And so then a friend of mine had a team in the Philippines and he said, let uh, just let me know who you want or what you want them to do and we'll get you some people to interview. And I said, I don't even know what I want them to do. It was that Chris Duckham, I'm not buddy? sure I could even keep one person busy. Yeah. And I was really like a guy who did everything myself. And that's a big step towards scaling is letting go of stuff. So listing that stuff down and, and hiring my first person and then um, hiring another one because it, it worked out well, was good. And then I had a few clients and I said to them, you should hire someone in the Philippines to do this stuff because they were paying me to do some of their things and we needed content and we needed website development stuff. And then I thought, you know what? They're going to suck at this. They're, they're not going to. They're not going to hire well. They're not going to look after the people well. They're not culturally aware. So I'll just. I said I'll hire someone, and I'll have them work on your stuff. You just pay me, and I'll pay them. And I had them work on the client stuff for two or three days a week, and then I used the other two or three days a week for my own business. And then, so that was the third one, and then I just started collecting them and. Um, before I knew it, I had 65 of them. Wow. 65. And we had a SEO business doing seven figures a year and a website development business. It just sort of, it was like you think about it, you can do it and you just create it. And uh, it was great. And and now I've got a team that I would classify as good at publishing. So they um, just basically clean up around me. If I create content, uh, I'll just put it into a folder and then they do their stuff with it. Uh, but they're also making sure that our websites are working, that our SEO is good. They send all the emails. They update anything on the site. They do the weekly news updates. They um, send out notifications when we have a podcast guest so that, might, you know, in the hope they might share it, et cetera. Yeah. Um, they do all the bookkeeping. They um, assist our contractors. So I do bring in some contractors. Uh, I've got some help here and there for little things like paid traffic or super high-level design or super high-level PHP API programming. And my team will interface directly with them in our Slack uh, central sort of office, our online office. And so I can see the conversations happening, but I don't have to be in the middle of it. So it's still very powerful. Definitely. I've got a question. Um, how how often do you actually, especially when you had a bigger team, like how much time do you spend them? Now, my, my plan is I, mean, I go to every year for like a week, sometimes two weeks, depends on, on availability. I mean, you're running a bigger, when you were a bigger team, were you spending time there or did you have a manager and they were kind of running themselves? I went to the Philippines 
probably two or three times a year. Yep. Uh, and I, I go now, usually go three or four times a year. I've got a house there and I've got family there now, right. as it turns out. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely entrenched into the culture. Yeah. Uh, I like some of their food and we do we sing songs and stuff so i think i have a good affinity for their culture i've been there a lot like i'm pretty familiar with the airport and yeah and uh my local neighborhood and and uh you know I, i'll live there for i think I li i've lived there for two three weeks a month at a time three or four times a year right and i go surfing there as well so it's become a second home and it makes a big difference. I'm astounded when I deal with some of my customers and I find out they've got a team and they don't even know where their team member lives. They don't speak a single word of the dialect. They don't have any cultural understanding. And I think, well, they probably view that person as a cog in a machine rather than a human. Yeah. And I came from a, a role where I had over 70 people to look after. I was responsible for a pretty big business. We were doing $50 million a year in sales. And it was natural for me to be able to have a large team and to manage that and to communicate well with them. A uh, team in the Philippines will communicate pretty well with uh, emoticons and text-based communication, yeah. uh, I've found. And it's um, pretty easy to unlock their potential if you de-risk your business environment. This is the other problem a lot of Westerners have. The way they communicate with their team puts the, the roller shutters down on them and, and they're not seeing the performance capable because their team are just scared uh, yeah. and they they really need that job and they are probably providing for five or six family members. They're putting them through school. They're looking after an older generation and a couple of siblings, uh, most definitely a parent, is the usual scenario. So when you can provide an opportunity for someone, it's good for you, it's good for them, but they won't do anything to jeopardize it. So if you can uh, learn more about them and unlock their potential, you'll discover how good they are. Mine do things that my customers just can't believe. They, they can't believe that we could do stuff like that. Yeah, it's, I mean, I think definitely, like I said, I'm looking to, I've got a small team, but, but it's long-term. And, and I think, you know, you see, a lot of young entrepreneurs kind of complaining about the Philippine employees. And every, every time I see that, I'm almost sure it's it's the manager, the, the guy who's complaining who's at fault. Because I have a recruitment business and yeah. we get to see both sides of the story, you know, like every story's got two sides. Sure. And my most honest customers in my high-level coaching program tell me they're a crap manager. Like they say, look, I'm a shit leader. I don't know how to do it. Uh, help me and at least they're open about it and they know where the problem is yeah so yeah if you have people leaving all the time or you can never get people to do uh to uh think for themselves and you hear these same sort of sound bites over and over again then you're probably the problem yeah yeah for sure uh james i want to talk a bit about your so the conference basically from what i understand you got you got it done just before the shutdown is, is that right? I mean, was it literally down oh, to the right. wire? You running your conference? It was down to the wire. Like it was in March, uh, around the twelfth and thirteenth. So as we were running our conference, like certainly in the lead up to it, 
Uh, so at the beginning of March, you know, I had money on the line. I'd, I'd paid the venue. Yep. People had paid me for tickets. I was pretty committed to the event. If I could have cancelled the event and no one was inconvenienced, including myself, I would have because it was stressful. Yep. And I don't do drama in my life. I <laughs> celebrate lack of drama. I have very little drama. And it was a pain in the butt. And this virus became serious. And I have some very good contacts who are, I don't know how to pronounce it, probably like epidemiologists, et cetera, uh, people who worked on SARS outbreak. Uh, they were communicating with me and letting me know stuff in advance. I knew in the beginning of March that they were going to shut down the borders that there was going to be quarantines, that they're going to limit venue capacities. So as we got closer, I was keeping an eye on it, fielding a few questions from concerned attendees. We ordered lots of hand sanitizers and we uh, requested people don't shake hands, etc. Like we really took it very seriously. We did have some international guests. Between the first day, which was a Thursday, and then the Friday the next day, our government announced uh, that anyone coming from overseas must quarantine for 14 days. Wow. So, like, you got it by one day. There's a dozen people in my room who would probably fit that criteria. And one of the speakers didn't come in the second day, which was sensible. And one of my speakers didn't come at all because he has, uh, he lives with someone who would be at risk and didn't want to have to quarantine on the way home. And I was uh, accepting of that too. I looked for the opportunity in that. So I was just in, um, I was in concern. I'm a very responsible person, Dan, like really responsible. I'm a parent. I'm a manager. Uh, I take accountability to my, for myself. And I'm, um, you know, I'm looking after these people at my event and I really care for their welfare and I'm not greedy or selfish. So I just couldn't wait for it to be finished. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I, I really had this this vision of a roller shutter coming down as we're doing the event. I mean, on the Friday, they cancelled the Australian Formula One Grand Prix. Yeah. And that's when we knew this is serious. Uh, Tom Hanks announced he had it. He was in quarantine in Australia, wasn't he, I think? He was. That was the day it was announced. Right. Um, and then, then the government announced that they would limit venues to 100 people on the weekend and then the next week it was down to, to 10 and then it was stay at home. Yep. So it all happened pretty quick. And, uh, yeah, it was like that was in March. It's uh, now, you know, recording this in the end of May. It seems like a lifetime ago, but I was speaking to a client of mine yesterday. He's in the events business. And in before my event in March, we had a coaching call and we theoreticized how serious is this? Like how serious is the virus and how serious is this economically for the business? And we made some predictions and uh, yesterday we we reviewed them and like we could not have been more accurate. We, we called right. it exactly right in terms of what was going to happen so far. And he made very quick decisions to pivot the business and, and adjust to that because, you know, he was in the, the crosshairs, his business. 
And uh, yesterday I went through his new software that he's developed for people who run trade shows who can do virtual trade shows. Yep. And it's great. So it's, it's very good to see that sort of thriving attitude and culture. And he would have been the most affected of all my clients. Yep. I lost very few clients uh, through that period, I think two uh, from my top tier, yeah. uh, which is remarkable because I have always been ensuring that I build a weatherproof business. We look for risk and eliminate it all the time. Yep. And it's, it's the, you know, if you're in the trade show business, it's pretty hard to sidestep that one, but he's still going and he's still on board and uh, he's got a new venture that could end up being actually better than his original business, but certainly it can complement his original business if that is able to happen again you know, in a year from now, which could be possible. It's funny, yeah. It's I mean, you think about everything, you know. I mean, I guess I mean some, my main business is apps events. You know, we work with schools around the world. We're a Google partner. We run um, mostly training for schools. You know, we run conferences. We run we run certification boot camps, stuff like that. And um, that business is is down a lot. You know, we we've, we've been lucky that we do a lot of work directly for Google, which is is keeps going. And Google obviously wants to show they can run things online, so we're doing that. Um, but but I think it's tough. I think anyone running live events now. I don't know what, what you think. I mean, what's what's the outlook? Because obviously, there's a bit of discussion. Can online events replace in person? You know, I've I've got an opinion. I'm curious what yours is. But do you think? I mean, no one's got a crystal ball. But I mean, do you think kind of next year we'll be running events as normal? Or you know, clearly it depends on the if the virus comes back. But what, what do you think the outlook is for people who kind of all are part of a business is is based around live events right now? Um, I think you'd have to start siloing different geographic locations because yeah. you know where you are and where I am is in a much better shape than the United States, for example, or the UK. So it could be market dependent. Yep. Um, in Australia, you would barely know that anything's happened. Yep. Like the share market's roaring ahead with economic um, vigour. People are out and about doing their thing. Things are, Kids are going to school. Um, coffee shops are opening up like we're just unlayering all the the um stay at home things it's just that there's uh per perspex screens up at the supermarket and the yep, post office that didn't used to be there i think there'll be permanent changes i can't imagine they'll take them down there's That's no reason I was to. Thinking, yeah, yeah. there'll be a big drop in flus um yeah. <laughs> so there'll be some changes but I think uh, for the general public, it will come down to things like how well will America handle this? They're, they're trying to open up quickly because they have an election and they're probably not ready for it, but they're doing it. And uh, I think a vaccination might be a big part of the puzzle. I think once yeah. once that's happening, that's going to really change things. But Will we ever stand, you know, next to a hundred other people like at a concert and stuff the same way? It's hard to tell. I mean, I'm already much more conscious of how close I stand to people just in general out and about. And I think we've had a, an adjustment in the same way that we have to take our shoes off when we catch an aeroplane because someone blew up a tower. Yeah. Um, you know, this could be a permanent shift. So I think, um, you know, it's, it's funny you say your industry because I have a client in a similar industry. They're, they teach schools technology. They are just so busy, it's ridiculous. Yep. 
and I've been coaching this guy for about seven years, six or seven years. And I think for the last four years, we've been building up the online side of it. And it was never really a priority, but we kept at it anyway. And he's just been able to flip the switch. And will they all go back to in-class stuff the way before? Yeah, I think they will, but they can also keep the online stuff. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, th- I think I pretty much agree. I mean, and, and I guess a lot of it just depends on on a vaccination or on whatever. You know, that that's gonna. I think that's a big hinge point, and that's yeah. not that's not likely until twenty twenty one. That that's for like the you know a rock concert type stuff. Those things are the most uh, difficult ones to imagine. You know, it might be a while till people want to go on cruise ships, or uh, you know the the typical things that have been particularly problematic. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I've got a guy who works with me, James, uh, who's based in Thailand. He's been there a long time. And and in Thailand, they've had, you know, various, they've had the red shirts and the yellow shirts. They've had the floods. They had SARS. And and kind of we forget in Europe, you know, you're a bit costed in Europe, but, you know, this is kind of the first big thing we've had. But in a lot of Asian countries, they've had a lot of things. You know, in the Philippines, they've had typhoons and earthquakes and all kinds of things. No, they get, they get smashed all the time. I mean, Australia was on fire for the last half of 2019. Yeah, that's In the early part of 2020, it was like massive bushfires raging for months. The, 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 the smoke was so thick, it was like an apocalypse. Uh, it was hard to breathe. People were having asthma really? attacks. Yeah. People were losing homes. Uh, a lot of wildlife died. Entire islands got wiped out. Like... We, we're a very resilient country and we, uh, we just get the job done. And I'm proud of what we've been able to do through this situation. But I think we've taken that approach across to our business and, and we, uh, we thrive in change. We deal with it well. Uh, and there's so much opportunity around if you look for it and if you i mean you can basically choose you can choose to focus on how negative it is you could go doom surfing that's an actual term doom surfing. or you could uh think about well, what does this mean what are the what are the consequences of this and how can i position myself you know like a wayne gretzky with the park in ice hockey yeah yeah uh, to capture this I've been moving funds around with uh, shares. I've been started two brand new business models and uh, I've adjusted the current programs I have and everything's just firing at the moment. I really have to work hard to keep to my limit of how many hours a week I want to work. But I have been surfing every single day. And even that, we've been battered by a large swell lately, uh, like 8, 10, 12 feet waves for the last week and that's been challenging but certainly very enjoyable wow yeah it's interesting because like just talking general entrepreneurship because obviously that's the great thing about a podcast you can talk about what you want and that's what i, I love is entrepreneurship <laughs> like there's huge opportunities now i mean i've i've been getting involved in a few things and um you know you have to always you, you know i think watching the news can be sometimes the worst thing you can do because it can it can it can create this image of there's big forces out there that are bigger and can stop your success, and I, I just tend to try and ignore that a lot of the time and focus on what I can affect. You know? well, I've noticed social media has become quite toxic yeah. uh, lately, and so I don't spend much time on it. There's 
people people react differently under stress and if you combine a few things the fact they're probably not getting as much sleep they're probably not exercising well or properly they are probably suffering losses or cancellations in their business they've probably lost some funds whether it's retirement funds or deposits on things uh, so there's a lot of moving pieces and the average human is really not going to cope with that well and so they turn into just nasty uh, emotional beasts like they're, they're fighting they're yeah. Uh, being irrational or unreasonable so i create my own environment and i'll basically just switch that off and i won't participate in a debate i'll just turn the device off i i won't even go on there and tell them that i'm not going on there it's i'll just yeah. disappear for a while and do my thing i'll go for a surf it's very important to keep your head in the right place to to maximize your sleep to com communicate very well with your team and make sure they feel safe and to communicate with your customers and to be very sensitive to their situation. I spoke to one lady today who just asked me if she could have a chat. I've known her for a while, not that well, but she just wanted to chat. And I said, okay. And, and I hopped on Zoom and she told me that she hasn't made a sale so far this year. And she was very emotional. And so you've got to be sensitive to the fact that each person, whether they're in the next suburb to you or a different country, is going through their own version of the world right now. And it's probably very different to yours. And uh, I've literally been building up to being able to cope with this type of scenario for the last 20 years. And that's what I help my students with. But a lot of people, this is their first time, especially the younger people, they haven't been through a challenge like this. And it's there's... Uh, the whole world has not really had to deal with something on this scale. Uh, so it's, it's a lot of new ground. And, and we don't really know what's going to happen. Yep. But we do know ourselves better than most. And we can control that more than most things. Definitely. The lady you, t you talked to on the phone who hadn't made a sale, do you think that was like, was it genuinely her business had just dropped off a cliff? Or do you think, were there some things in her mindset, she just, she just become so overcome with it, that was what was stopping her actually making a sale? had a chat to her and I had a look at her stuff and she's just confused. She's she's confused because there's another person in her market who most people in our market deal with and yep. people don't deal with her and she wasn't sure why. And I don't think she was clear on what she actually offers and to whom. Certainly I wasn't aware of the things she offers and I'd be one of the people who would be able to uh, help her and find opportunities for her. So it's very important we have clarity and, and we simplify things so that we can actually articulate it. And the second thing is to make sure we communicate it. I think a lot of people went into a hole where they weren't selling. Yeah, They they just switched off. And that's really dangerous. Like if you want to stimulate the economy, you need to spend money. And the best way to spend money is for people to, to buy things from you and then you spend that money into the economy. You go and buy food or whatever. Yeah. Uh, keep the wheels turning. So uh, stopping selling is uh, definitely one reaction that I've seen that's pretty devastating. A lot of people lost their job. Unemployment rates are high. So I've noticed family and friends who are affected by this uh, are, in, are in a pretty 
mainstream market that uh, you know gets swept up in this, and they didn't protect themselves, even though I've been trying to help them do this for at least the last ten years. They just don't they don't take it seriously until it's too late, because yeah. this this stuff just happened, and you have to be ready. And, and uh, yeah, so in, in this lady's case i suspect she's a bit confused a bit overwhelmed um it probably turns into a spiral of despair and difficulty hence yeah. she reached out to me so i sent her some resources that i have uh that will help her with the part she's struggling with the most which is how to sell she doesn't know how to sell yeah and i think that's a great skill to have so i sent her some training on that I've asked her to go away and clarify what she actually offers for whom and how much so that I can at least look for opportunities for her yep. and we'll go from there. That's great. Look, James, that's, we covered a lot of stuff. That was really, really fascinating. First of all, thanks very much for coming back on a second time. Um, where, where can people find you online? What, what's, what's, what's the best link to give out to people? I reckon superfastbusiness.com yeah. is a good starting place. I'll, I'll check it out. To be honest, I, I mean, this is interesting talking to you a second time. I didn't even know you had people in there who were kind of similar situation to me running. I mean, even though I do, my business is online in terms of we run online courses and we promote things online. Uh, you know, it's, it's mostly in person. And I didn't actually even realize you had people like that in, in your community. I got lots of educators. Yeah. Um, from PE teachers through to um, tech educators like how to use um, Google, Apple, yep. Microsoft in schools. I, I know that market very, very well uh, because I've been working with people in that market for a long time. And it, it's got to be one of the hottest markets on the planet right now. Like it schools is, yeah. still need to educate and they can't do it face-to-face. -face. Yep. So where are they going to go? And it turns out my customer has been positioned as the go-to expert. Like these big companies, um, they, they, they're literally trying to spend their budgets on something. They can't have in-person events. They still need yep. to spend their budgets. They're, gonna, they're just going to spend it with my customer. He, he's literally going to add millions of dollars out of this and right. deservedly so because he's positioned himself right where he needs to be for this to be um, happening. It's not luck. Perfect. James, thank you very much and uh, all the best for the future. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks, Dan.